Why don't you tell us the tri- the TPW tri- uh, tripolar, tripolar world, world thesis? Yes. Yes, what what you. is that? Well, it's a phrase that you coined. Yes, it um, is a phrase that I coined. I want to make sure I own that uh, as a sell side strategist, <laughs> right. right? You know, you got to own those themes. And, yep. and the tripolar world theme uh, really comes out of uh, my view that 2008 uh, was not only a financial crisis and crash, but it also re- meant the crash of all major global growth models at the same time. So you had the U.S. debt finance consumer mo- uh, model yep. destroyed. You had the, the European vendor financing model where the Western European banks were lending to the southern periphery at very low interest rates. They borrowed way too much. That crashed. Yep. And then you had the emerging markets, which was an export to the West uh, model, and that crashed. So really, uh, we in 2008 destroyed all our growth models at the same time. Right. And we've basically been buffering that uh, fallout of that uh, collapse uh, since 2008-9, really using monetary policy, particularly in the developed economies, yep. right? The Fed with QE, yep. uh, Bank of Japan with QE, and of course, most recently, the ECB with QE. Yep. The other factor that's really buffered uh, the world economy is, uh, of course, China in its massive stimulus in 2010, which really gave all emerging markets a big leg up, all the people selling into, into that uh, demand uh, profile, and really led to a situation very unusual where the emerging markets provided the bulk of the global growth right. since 2010. All right, And so now where we are, in my view, is we're kind of caught in this no man's land where the Fed is done with QE, uh, perhaps. <laughs> we can get well, to that. We, yeah, um, and, and China is, in my view, definitely done with massive stimulus. They no longer have the room to do a, a, a big, big uh, deal. And, and, and I was in China a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago, and it was clear at that point that the 2010 stimulus was seen internally as a major mistake. Okay. And that was one of the things that allowed me to suggest uh, over the course of the last year that there's no way China's going to do a big move. They're doing lots of little moves to yep. try and, and smooth out their adjustment process. And we can come back to, to China if you'd like. Yep. I've got a lot more thoughts on that. But I want to get to the tripolar worldview. Yep. So, the tri- so as, a sa- as the lead-in, tripolar worldview basically argues that we are in a world of uh, insufficient demand. Yep. Excess supply, no inflation, and excess debt. In those, com- the, the combination of those four things is uh, very low growth. Right. The outcome of those four things. In the last two, no inflation and high, high debt loads are very is very worrisome. Right. We can go back to the 1930s and yep. understand exactly. what happens because if you can't raise your prices or prices fall and you go into deflation, your debt level stays the same. Right. You've got to work harder and harder to try and pay that off, and ultimately that you collapse. <clears throat> So uh, in that world of insufficient demand and excess supply, uh, we need a new growth model. And what's interesting to me is that over the last couple of years, there's been lots of questions about, you know, how can we do this? What are, how are we going to get out of this problem? Even starting to define the problem as secular stagnation, right, Larry Summers. Yeah. Uh, but very few people have really developed a case or a model to grow. And so tripolar worldview is my attempt to provide that model, okay? So Tripolar World 1.0 began back in the 1990s with NAFTA. Okay. All right. NAFTA brought together the U.S. as the consumer, Canada as the, as the energy provider, yep. and Mexico as the low-cost manufacturer. That was the model. Right. All right? And I argue that the introduction of the euro in 99 is a competitive response to this. 
And if you think about Western Europe as the consumer, Russia as the energy provider, and Central and Eastern Europe as a low-cost manufacturer. China and Asia a little bit different. That wasn't quite as well developed, um, but you could basically argue Northern Asia as the consumer, the uh, Southeast Asian nations as the energy provider, and China obviously as the low-cost producer. Okay. Fast forward 20 years to 2014, 2015, and there are three new factors that uh, are driving, uh, I believe, sustainable new factors that are driving what I call tripolar world 2.0. And the tripolar is obviously the three regions, Asia, Europe, and the Americas. And these three new factors are uh, each region's growing ability to uh, uh, self-finance through wealth savings and wealth pools that have developed over the last 20 years. Think of the European corporate bond market. Think of the massive increase in savings in Asia as two examples. And of course, we have our own massive savings pool here in in the Americas. Uh, So the ability to self-finance, the ability to self-produce through advanced manufacturing, robotics, 3D printing, the focus increasingly on being close to the consumer, right? So the ability to self-produce. And then third, the ability to self-consume. Uh, which is driven by the very big uh, factors of urbanization, uh, the growth in the service sector economy, and e-commerce. And so I think, I I argue that the next step for globalization is kind of a step back to regionalization and regional integration as the catalyst which can catapult the world economy onto a higher growth path. Now, where are we today in this process? I see the three regions in the following fashion. Uh, The first is a proactive region, and that's Asia, led by China. Uh, You think about the Asian uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank in China, right? You think about uh, China's Silk Road and Maritime Silk Road initiatives, um, and that's clearly they're trying to stitch up uh, their their region. I think both for uh, economic uh, reasons as well as for strategic kind of geopolitical Geopolitical, power reasons, right? They want to make sure they dominate uh, that part uh, of the world. Now... Of course, Asia has a lot of uh, challenges to it, too. And I, what, I kind of summarize them in what I call the Asian Iron Triangle. And that Iron Triangle is made up of a weak yen, slowing Chinese demand, and a strong dollar. Yep. And, and that helps explain why Asia, uh, writ large, has been such a challenge. Because there are major forces uh, in play there that are completely reordering uh, the whole process. But nonetheless, in this tripolar worldview, Asia is the proactive region led by China. Yep. Uh, the second region that we uh, focus on And I guess is, just back again, sure. how does Japan play into the proactive? Uh, well, or, Japan, or how do you think about Japan in that context? Uh, well, I think Japan has the ability to be uh, a player, uh, a major player. Uh, they have uh, successfully kind of uh, reposition themselves as a lower cost uh, producer through yep. the devaluation of the yen. And as I mentioned, that's an, a challenge for the rest of Asia. Uh, if you think about it, when we entered the financial crisis, Japan uh, was trading at about uh, 125 to the dollar, the yen. And it went all the way, it strengthened all the way down to 75 yen to the dollar. Mm-hmm. And they, they were the first ones to throw up their hands and say, you know, we can't sustain this currency level. <laughs> and so they devalued back to 125. Now, keep in mind that the important currency relationship in the world, one of the most important, is the dollar renminbi peg, the Chinese currency roughly pegged to the dollar. Mm-hmm. So Japan's devaluation versus the dollar has also been a devaluation versus, versus China. Right. And that's why as China slows, Japan arguably has been insulated 
uh, from that slowdown by the fact that they've already devalued themselves. That doesn't mean they're going to completely uh, escape any of the fallout of a, of a significant China slowdown, but it does mean that unlike South Korea, Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, etc., they've already done their devaluing versus the renminbi. Okay. Um, so the second region is uh, the reactive region, as I call it. So there's the proactive region, Asia. Yep. There's the reactive region, which is Europe, in my view, reacting to the crises, the series of crises that Europe has faced right over the last couple of years, the, 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 the bank uh, issues that fell out of their, their broken growth model, the Greece issue, uh, now the migrant issue, and uh, potentially down the road, the Brexit, right, the potential for the UK to leave uh, the euro. Uh, I think Europe would love to get uh, a chance to be finished with all these worries and be able to focus on on deepening its growth model. And there are three specific areas where I see that as potentially happening. The first is in the capital markets, right, moving from a capital market union to a uh, banking union, so a, a fully integrated financial uh, system. Uh, second is in the energy space, uh, where there's a clear strategic desire to kind of rebalance their energy uh, supply and demand away from Russia. Uh, and then third is the digital single market, um, which is a big, big deal and potentially would be very powerful uh, for, um, for the European economy. So that's the second region, the reactive region. And then, of course, we come to the third region, uh, which is I call the um, inactive region. And unfortunately uh, for you and I, <laughs> we are uh, we sit so in that, the inactive region. The inactive is basically NAFTA. Uh, well, well, yeah, NAFTA plays a part in it. And, and the view, simply stated, is that this region, the Americas, so not just the United States, but okay. South and Central America, yep. we really uh, missed and passed on a big opportunity to take advantage of our first mover position with NAFTA right. twenty years ago. We really haven't integrated anymore in the last 20 years. Yep. So we have gone from being the leader with NAFTA to being the laggard. Or do, it, doing nothing. Yeah, yeah. And, and therefore by definition becoming the laggard. Yep. Um, and so here I think uh, uh, I'm somewhat confident because of the following fact, uh, and that is that, that South and Central America are desperate for a new growth model. Right. They really benefited from China's demand for raw materials. You think of Chile with copper, you think of Brazil with iron ore, right. Argentina with food, Venezuela with oil. All that stuff is finished. And you can see it just in the fallout when the Brazilian economy, for example, is right. a perfect example. And so I think the opportunity for our region to, to come together uh, is quite large. And I think the appetite south of our border is, un is unusually so more uh, desirous of this than, than we are. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you think about it, people don't really appreciate the fact that if you gross up all of South, uh, South America, you have uh, roughly 500 plus million people. You have a region that over the last 10 years or so has grown at a 4% GDP rate, roughly. Now, of course, some of that's China-related, but nonetheless, very strong growth. And that has led to a situation where the per capita GDP is something around $10,000. Mm -hmm. And so that is that's a big region yeah. that has now reached a maturation level and a wealth yeah. level that would suggest an ability to consume right. in a significant uh, way. And so I've been arguing that we should be focusing a lot of our attention southward 
and look to develop our regional economy. So we already can take energy from Canada and bring it to Mexico, right? That, that now is actually yeah. happening. And so this is, what, this is an example of the integration in NAFTA. We need to take that further south and bring all those hundreds to, of to millions of people. Million yeah, cons- yep. potential consumers who uh, U.S. Uh, could uh, engage with in a, in a way that would be uh, profitable for us, obviously, and profitable for them and beneficial. And there's, you know, there's all sorts of ways of thinking about it. But I'm um, a big believer that that's the real upside for the U.S. The upside for the U.S. is not, in my view, um, uh, doing a trade deal with Asia. Um, it's not in doing a trade deal with Europe. Right? Europe is, you know, even though I like Europe from an investment perspective, it's not a fast-growing uh, region. Yep. And Asia, uh, you know, we already have trade relationships with virtually everyone there. Yep. This is, in my view, kind of more driven by the desire to kind of hedge China a little bit than it is to truly stimulate economic okay. activity. The real opportunity in terms of economic activity, I believe, is U.S., looking southward in, in developing our region, the one of three in the tripolar review, developing our region into a much more coherent, uh, cohesive, uh, integrated economic entity. Because I believe the next 10 or 20 years, and we can maybe finish on this and move on to something else, but yep. my, my, take, my, my final point would be that, um, well, there'd be, there'd be two. First is that if you think about our options, right, every country for itself, is not really an option. That leads to trade wars, currency, mm-hmm. uh, all the things we know are bad. Okay, uh, Muddle through, as we are doing, risks uh, upheaval both on Wall Street, I would argue, and on Main, Main Street. Street. Right? Globalization, as uh, we've known it, I think is over. We're not going forward. Everything, you go look at global trade flows, you look at financial integration, you look at a number of different indicators, they're all going in reverse. Uh, so that's not the way forward. And I, I would argue that the tripolar worldview is one that uh, can be a way forward, and I'm trying to offer it into the into the space as an example of a growth model. Yep. We need to come up with a way to deal with the insufficient demand, excess supply, lack of inflation, and heavy debt. Yep. And if we don't, then I think we're we're set up from a financial market. Story, yeah. yeah, from a financial market perspective, it's going to be very very challenging. Yep. Thank you for listening to this edition of Hedgeye's Real Conversations. If you enjoyed this interview. We encourage you to subscribe to Hedgeye Podcasts for automatic downloads of future interviews with top market and economic thought leaders. You can also visit Hedgeye.com for additional content. There you can learn more about our financial research firm's comprehensive market research products and complimentary videos and analysis. The proceeding has been presented for informational purposes only, and none of the information contained herein constitutes a solicitation, offer, opinion, or recommendation by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guest speakers to buy or sell any security or to provide legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice regarding the profitability or suitability of any security or investment. Opinions and analysis are based on information from sources believed to be reliable. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can and may go up or down based on any number of factors. Consult your financial professional before investing.